open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. We want everyone to have the text in front of them. Very important. And then as we do that, let me also invite any of the um, adults this morning that are supposed to be in a prayer volunteer meeting. You can just quietly head to the back and go be a part of that meeting. All right, but the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel is where we're at. So we've been slowly working through this chapter this month. This is our last week on it. And each Sunday, we've done something very specific. And what we've done is we've looked into different things that are happening in culture that affect today's church. That's what we've been zeroing in on. Last week, we we took a deep dive into a cultural message and ideology called high performance. The week before that, we looked at artificial intelligence and how this affects the church and how we should look at this as scriptural followers of Jesus. Um, And see, in today's passage, what Jesus is going to discuss, it's going to lead us to consider a current movement that's not happening outside the church and culture, but it's happening from within, inside the church. And you've probably heard this term. It's a movement called deconstruction. Now, if you don't know what that is, deconstruction, that's okay. You'll learn. You'll get an education on that, uh, hopefully today. Um, So I'll explain what that whole phenomenon is and why it's important for us to be aware of it, okay? But let's first remember the story. So chapter 13, take a look down at your Bibles. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus tells the disciples something shocking. He says that the Jerusalem temple is going to be destroyed, torn down to the ground. Now, this was a huge thing to say. Since the temple was not only the center of all Jewish life, it was in the capital itself, in the urban area, and it covered 35 acres right in the middle of the city. It was the main center of everything in the Jewish faith and with the Jewish people. Now, the other reason why this was shocking is because at that time, this temple was the largest religious site in the world. There was no temple that rivaled how big this was. Reality is, if you know history, Jesus was right. Forty years later, what he says in verse 2 happens. The Roman Empire invades the city and they destroy it. They bring it all to the ground. Now, upon hearing this prediction, the disciples ask in verse 4, if you take a look at your Bibles, they ask, when will all of this take place? And they ask an even more specific question. They ask, is there a sign that will happen to know that it's about to take place? Jesus eventually answers them in verse 14, saying that the sign is when you see the pagan armies standing in the middle of the temple. It says in verse 14, standing where they ought not. That is the sign that they've penetrated through the capital walls. They've laid hold of the temple. And now is the time to run and get out of the city, get out of the urban area, flee to the mountains, the small mountains that surround Jerusalem for safety. This is what Jesus details in in verses 14 through 27. Okay? Today's text, verses 28 through 37, is where Jesus gives his final warning to them about what's going to take place. Let's take a look at it. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out and and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Jesus is saying, 
when you see all these events start to unfold that he's already detailed, you know that the pagan armies are near. They're at your gates. I've warned you ahead of time. And then he goes on in verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is not talking about the end of the entire world. A lot of people misconstrue that. He's talking about the end of their Jewish world. He says, this generation, in your lifetime, this will happen to your homeland, to our homeland, Jesus says. And what is this? This is divine judgment on God's people and God's religion. Let me explain. Their temple, an entire religious way of life, is going to be destroyed since they rejected God's sent son and God's gospel. God's no longer in it. He's fulfilled its purpose with the final sacrifice in the sacrificial system of the temple, which was his son. And now that God has fulfilled it and they have rejected him, God is going to rip it away from their hands. Hebrews 9 talks about this final sacrifice that ended the sacrificial system that God had set up but now had fulfilled. Hebrews 9 (coughs) reads this. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So this was always God's plan from the beginning. And so Jesus gives his final word of warning to his disciples right here in this passage. Let's go on. It reads in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's the big theme here. And that's been the theme throughout the chapter. Jesus is telling him to stay awake. The early church who will suffer the fall of Jerusalem must stay awake to what's happening around them so that they're not led astray. That's Jesus' message. Now, how do we connect this to today? I don't think it's that hard. Just as the modern church today must stay awake to what's happening around us so that we're also not led astray. Is the temple of Jerusalem going to come and be destroyed? Well, it's already been destroyed. All they have left is the Western Wall. And most scholars even debate if that even is the original. Do we need to worry about... uh, the church itself being destroyed piece by piece? Probably not. But we have our own kind of destruction and suffering in today's world. And here's what I want to show you. I think Jesus brings this out in the chapter. There's always a connection 
to when a big scale destruction and change happens in the world, something always follows, and that is deception. Destruction and deception are like two evil cousins that seem to always go together. Destruction and then deception. Think about it. There has been, and I'm going to go back to 2020. I know we don't have the best memories. It's not the fondest time. No one will tell you my favorite year in life was 2020. Will they? Okay. But I want to show you this biblical connection. There was so much destruction and change during that pandemic. Think of all the other disruptive things that happened under that that time period of the pandemic, right? George Floyd's murder and all of the racial conflict that just came up. I mean, our country was like about to explode. The protests, the riots, all the different things that happened. I mean, do you remember when, when there was a protest that turned into a riot right there in front of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? And, 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 and the president, President Trump at the time, pushed all the people back and walked to that church that apparently was burning the day before. I mean, you turned on the news and you didn't know what was coming next. It was destruction, destruction, change, change. Do you happen to remember the 2020 election? And all that happened during that? The supply chain issues. All those boats off the coast of San Diego or wherever that port was. And we were all worried about, well, we have food or clothes or the different thing. Can can I buy a car, right? Do you remember the Supreme Court nominations? I can't remember if Kavanaugh's nomination was right before the pandemic or during it. But all that took place, the chaos that happened then. The lockdowns and the education system turned on its head. January 6th, the vaccines. I got so tired of researching and talking and debating over vaccines. People would want to bring it up. And I said, look, enough of my time has been spent on thinking about that. I need to move on. Declining church attendance. We didn't meet in church forever. And then we went online, which was a terrible idea. We did it. We thought we had to. And ever since then, the numbers in the American church have just, just, just dropped. The bottom fell out. So that's all the destructive and disruptive things that happened. Now I want you to consider all the deception and false ideology that has come in the wake of that. Look at how authoritarian governments are becoming more and more. And Big Brother and, and, and the looking over your shoulder and the surveillance. Look at the state of free speech in our country right now. Look at the politic. Do you remember how politicized everything came during the pandemic? Do you remember how sports became political and this became political and eating a hamburger became political? I mean, everything was politicized and just the dividing of our nation and the media outlets just gaslighting and just turning people on each other. Deception after deception after deception. The trans ideology that just exploded in the wake of the pandemic. The different conspiracies. And when I say conspiracy, that's not me saying that it's not true or that it is true. I'm just going to name some of them. Do you happen to remember QAnon? We, We tend to forget that. That was a big thing. The election fraud. The Wuhan lab, or was it the wet market? And now there's been some pretty good research that it leads to towards more towards the lab. The food shortages, all these conspiracies, the power grid's going to go out. 
There's a connection between when destruction happens, deception seems to always follow. Now, regarding the church, COVID shut down many churches. And then in its wake, an acceleration of existing destruction and deception started to happen. The Southern Baptist Convention and all of the um, sexual abuse scandals that came out. Remember this? Online church. Now you might say, gosh, that's pretty strong for you to call it a, a deception. And I don't call it a deception. It's not a deception. But man, I think it's really, really far from what the apostles envisioned when they thought of the early church. I don't think church is sitting on your couch and watching. Now, I, you're sick. You had an injury. You're a missionary in a country where you can't meet freely. Online church is a great and good thing. But just sitting on your couch and watching church, is that, is that, that's my local church. That, that's just, that's untrue. The moral failure of pastors in the wake of what's happened with the pandemic. There's been theology reports on the state of American belief done by Barna. And it was, it was supposed to be evangelical belief. And I can't remember the percentage, but showing how many people thought that Jesus was actually divine was shocking. Destruction and deception always go together. And one of the biggest ideologies that accelerated during the pandemic was this thing called deconstruction. Jesus says over and over in verses 3 and verses 30, 34 and verses 37, he says, be awake to these things. So I want to talk about deconstruction. You doing all right? You got real serious. I know I talked about serious things, but you got real serious. That's fine. They are serious. Okay. Let's talk about deconstruction. Think with me here. What is it? Deconstruction I wrote the best sentence I possibly could to, to explain it. It's an ideological movement that promotes the process of disassembling the different doctrines of the faith on one's own terms, not the scriptures, to reassemble the faith to your own liking by keeping some parts and chucking others. That's what deconstruction essentially is. Think of it this way. It's taking apart a car that you were given. Your parents gave you the car. The uncle gave you the car. Okay, it's taking it apart. You didn't set the design of the car. Some brilliant person in the company did. Nor did you make it. Some brilliant people in the factory did. Nor do you own it. It was given to you a certain way, and so you received it. That's how Christianity is. We don't design it. We don't make it. We don't own it. We inherit it. We receive the faith, the faith, objective, from Christ and from the apostles. That notion of receiving the faith is very clear in Scripture. I want to give you just one small example. It's 1 Corinthians 15. It should be on the screen. This is Paul summing up the gospel, but he's also talking about how it works. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, not disassemble and chuck it, I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, Paul says, that Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the Scriptures. There's that notion in Scripture of receiving. But the deconstruction movement does not act like that is the case. Rather, they act as though we individually own the faith and can ignore God's design and make of it. And so they're encouraged to disassemble the car entirely, throwing out a doctrine on hell if they don't seem to like that, or a doctrine on biblical marriage if that doesn't fit their current worldview, or something that it says about God's wrath, to then remake the whole thing the way they want it. But here's the issue. The car they now drive is nothing like the original, and it does not look the same nor drive the same. And with most people, over time, they realized what they reassembled or reconstructed is not drivable anymore. Because once you get on that slippery slope of chucking out one doctrine because it doesn't fit your thinking or feeling, many others seem to follow. And you're left with a car that isn't drivable anymore. A classic one is biblical marriage. The notion that it's between one man and one woman. This is like a gateway into dropping many other doctrines. This is why I think the church, amongst other reasons, has been so firm on that particular issue of life. It's because it's almost like a gateway drug. When you get rid of that, I can tell you name after name, slowly over time, might take a decade, might take two decades, might take two months, many other doctrines seem to follow. And you're left with nothing, and that's a tragedy. And so often, deconstruction leads to or ends with deconversion. Make sense? Okay. Here's what's important. That's definition. I want to now make a distinction. I want to distinguish between two kinds of journeys. There's deconstruction and there's a process called deepening. Deconstruction and deepening. Deepening is one's, one's faith to the real faith found in Scripture and given to us by Christ and the apostles. That is a different process. Why does every Christian have to go on that deepening journey? Well, it's simple. All of us inherit the faith. It's been given to us, just as it was to Paul. And it's been given properly or improperly. It's been handed down to us. And there are certain things that need to be taken back to Scripture if they do not align. And if they don't, we do get rid of them. Okay? The things that do align, we deepen ourselves in them. This is what it says in Colossians. This journey of deepening. It reads this, therefore, as you receive, there's that theme again, Christ Jesus, the Lord. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. That's a process. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he gives a warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. I think of how Paul explains it in Ephesians 4. Let me give you another sample. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, so that's process language, 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, now we have maturation language, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see this kind of thinking throughout the New Testament. This is deepening, maturing the faith. And again, that's the word, the faith. It already exists. It's an objective thing. It's not subjective. It's a pre-existing living reality. And we deepen ourselves in its soil over time. And when we do that, the soils of Scripture and the tradition, when we do that, Christ then grows fruit out of that soil over many decades. Now, here's one other thing I want to distinguish. You still doing okay? I want to distinguish deconstruction with dealing with doubts. Doubts are real. They happen. The Bible talks about them. Tragedy hits. You lose a loved one. You don't think you're going to go through some level of doubt. Life turns out differently than you thought it would. You don't think that will cause doubt? Disease comes out of nowhere on a scan. Intellectual questioning. Church hurt, which is real. All these things can provoke honest doubt that needs to rightly and gently be looked into and answered. And here's how you answer it. You ask this question over and over. What does God say about this in his word? Not ultimately, how do I feel about it? But what is God's will as expressed in Christ and scripture? This is how the church has been doing it for centuries. You're getting deeper answers and truths and love from God for your doubts, for your hurt, for your confusion, for your questions. This is a good and right journey for the Christian. It is deepening your faith, but not deconstructing it. Do we see the difference in the two? Now, one thing to be awake to, again, Jesus' theme in Mark 13, is when your journey crosses the line from deepening into deconstruction. You need to be aware of that. Sometimes we can despair and we can go down a different kind of road. And the sign, again, think of what we've heard in Mark 13, the sign of when they're coming. The sign that this is about to take place is when you remove the book of Scripture from the table, the center of the table as your supreme reference point and body of truth. And the book of culture starts to slowly and quietly and sometimes even unnoticeably replace it. Then deconstruction, or in the language of Mark 13, destruction is at your gates and it will destroy the temple of your biblical faith. It will leave it in spiritual ruins if you give it enough time. And your friends 10 years down the road what will never know that a Christian once stood there. Your faith will be so leveled to the ground over time and replaced with this mishmash of cultural worldview 
that they won't believe these tales that one day you were a devout follower of Jesus. And this is why the New Testament warns over and over about this slippery slope. Let me give you a sampling of these warnings. Too often we don't like to read these in today's modern church. I love to read them because I know how serious this can be. And I think the warnings in Scripture are really good. Think of a good cake. It's got a little sour. It's got a little sweet. You've got to have all the ingredients. If it's just sweet, it's going to taste terrible. You've got to have the bitter stuff. I don't, I, don't, I don't bake, so I have no clue what I'm talking about. But, you know, you ask, like, oh, baking soda goes in there or, or non-rising flour, something like that. Daniel always forgets to put it in, and our cobbler's ruined every July 4th. But we still eat it. You just ask me. Phenomenal cook. Terrible baker. Okay? You got to have the sweet and the sour, the bitter. You got to have the warnings. And for some reason, we don't like read them in the church anymore. But gosh, they're important. He talks about the slippery slope you can get on. Galatians 1.6. Look at the language. I didn't come up with this. This is the apostles. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 2 Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let me give you two others. Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers... To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Gosh, I've seen that happen. Second Peter 2, last one. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you. He's talking about the church who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, I believe that these things can be fluid when it comes to deconstruction and deepening. Some of us could get up here right now and you could share your faith journey and it may have started in a biblical deepening process, but through different circumstances, It it moved into deconstruction and it went back and forth, right? But by the grace of God, it ended with deepening your faith and not destroying it. And that's why you're still here today in the Lord's church, growing your faith even more in the soil of Scripture. But but, but I want to be clear, these things can be gray at times. Now, reality is that many people don't come from the most, and you can say amen in your heart if you need to, They don't come from the most biblical nor healthy church backgrounds. I deal with a lot of people that come from some incomplete foundations. And I had many. I mean, I I didn't really have one. They inherited the faith, or you inherited the faith, in some wonky ways that need to be reformed. Right? Because the answer to bad teaching is not leaving the faith or leaving the church. The answer is better teaching. The answer to bad community is not abandoning it altogether. It's better community. The answer to church hurt is not leaving, although sometimes you need to leave that church, but it's church healing is what needs to happen. 
And I found that so much of my intellectual questioning, especially in college, especially when I decided to do a philosophy degree at a secular liberal arts university, I prayed about it. I felt confirmation that I did it. So much of my intellectual questioning was of my current experience of the faith. What needed to happen is it needed to expand. My current small experience of the faith, it needed to expand into the full-bodied faith of Scripture. Let, let me explain. I just needed to read more and read better. I needed to listen to older Christian minds and truth. You see, the reality is we all start with a small version of the full-bodied Christian faith, which makes newer believers vulnerable to all kinds of attacks, questions, doubts, the demeaning words of secular thinking. And so many mistakenly end up rejecting the faith because of this. But, but here's the distinction. They're not rejecting the full-bodied experience and corpus of Christian faith found in Scripture. They're rejecting their own small version and experience of it. Do you see the difference? It's like the atheist who doesn't believe in the unbiblical picture of God. I say, amen, neither do I. You see, their experience and understanding is a wonky, distorted version of it. Or for many Christians who go through deconstruction, it's just a small version of it. And so it's no wonder that they end up, unfortunately, deconstructing a very small and incomplete understanding of how rich and awesome and beautiful and truthful biblical Christianity really is. Here's the last thing I want to address on the topic. Again, the words of Jesus. Be awake to these things. I think, I did a lot of thinking on this, so I'm excited to share this with you, by the way. I thought I got some insight here. I think the largest let me caveat, let me preface. I am not a hater of culture, of America, or any of those things. I think they have their place. Now my thought. I think the largest current destructive element to the church today is simply a secular cultural takeover that's happening right now. The voice of secular thinking and worldview is like this tidal wave that's crashed into America and is washing out so much in its path just as it's already happened in Europe decades before. You go to Europe now, as it was before the 1950s, the sacred is scarce there. A sense of God is weak. Christian worldview has evaporated from the average citizen's Thinking and, and overall frame of, of reference and frame of mind. They don't see the world and life from a God-situated frame of reference. And I see this happening in American life. I certainly see this happening in the younger generations because the faith isn't rightly being passed down and given to them. I, here's what I do see. I see how powerful these cultural and pop voices really are to people there is this religious like acceptance of what they say is true and what they say is good and what they say is right there's even this like godly fear associated 
with some of these voices and thinking. And you, you can't say that anymore. And you can't voice your opinion on that. That, that. That's now become sacred. That ideology has now become sacred. You can't, you can't talk about biblical marriage anymore out in public. What are you doing? What are you doing? You have to whisper about it. Yeah, that's, that's sacred now. That's religion now. You can't voice your dissenting opinion with your little outdated Christianity. Grow up, outgrow that faith. That's, that, that's from our ancestors. That's, they didn't have technology and science back then. You see, it's become the new religion. And so no wonder people are deconstructing biblical faith. It now needs, here's the big point, their faith now needs to match not what the Bible says is true, right, and good, but what culture says is true, right, and good. They now need to take their beliefs and see if they line up with current thinking on gender or on social issues or on a notion that there's no such thing as divine punishment or divine wrath. You see, now in their Bible, their personal Bible, hell cannot exist. Those verses have to go. Gender distinctions cannot exist. The exclusiveness of salvation from Christ cannot exist. A supreme truth cannot exist. And on and on and on we go. Instead of doing what the Reformation did, the Reformation took their current understanding of faith back to see if it lines up with the Word. But our current church is, is doing it differently. This, and, and, and I'm going to be direct with you, this ever-changing, ideologically schizophrenic, in my opinion, childish often, non-coherent mind of fallen culture is now the book of Scripture, which makes no sense to me. Cultural thinking is so small to me. It changes every decade. I'd rather people leave the biblical faith and, like, devote themselves to a school of philosophy. Become a Stoic or something. Or, 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 or pick an Eastern religion. Devote yourself to something. But this mishmash of just cultural thinking is nothing. It's people who don't want to devote themselves to something and submit to a mind that's far bigger than their own. I mean, do we really think the cultural ideologues of today are, are closer to the truth than the minds of St. Paul? and Augustine, and Aquinas, and Teresa of Avia. I mean, if anything, the pandemic exposed how just illogical and crazy it can be. I look at America and I say, we, we've thrown out all rationality. And, and, and we can't determine what's true to save our life. And there's been this quiet tolerance of it. And I don't see that kind of reaction to what's happening and how the apostles responded to different kind of heretical movements and thinking, nor the church fathers of history. They didn't react in this quiet, okay, tolerant way. Now, you know me, I'm not saying pull out the bullhorn and be an idiot. And I'm not saying be disrespectful to your professor or whoever else. But I do want to give you, as we end, a small sample of how the early church related to things like we're seeing today. So there was two bishops. This is not a joke, by the way. There was two bishops that went into a barn. No, it's not a joke. But this is two bishops that somehow met in a cafe or whatever. 
whatever there was in the second century, okay? There was a bishop named Polycarp. Polycarp was the direct disciple of the apostle John. So he's a big player in the early church. And there was a gentleman named Marcion. Marcion is now famous for being um, uh, unbiblical in his views. And his main view was that the Old Testament, we should no longer read the Old Testament as Christians, that we should um, chuck it. In the words of one preacher today, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That was the thinking of Marcion. So did not hold the biblical faith. Polycarp did. And so these two apparently randomly met in some kind of a uh, cafe or someplace. And it was like a meeting of two t- just titans. And the story goes uh, that Marcion walked up to Polycarp and asked Polycarp if he knew who he was. Polycarp replied, I know you. The firstborn of Satan was his response. Wow, (laughs) that is a lot different than today's uh, discourse. Now, I'm not necessarily encouraging that. It's just showing you. There wasn't this soft, quiet, oh, may I not offend anyone, tolerance. I like this next one better. So Polycarp tells a story about the apostle John. Because remember, Polycarp was his disciple, so he knew John very well. And he tells this story that goes like this. Polycarp describes how John, the disciple of the Lord, was one day going to bathe at Ephesus. That's where he lived. He saw Serenthus. Serenthus was a modern-day heretic. He saw Serenthus there and rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, this is the apostle John, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within it. End of story. Did you get the story? He runs out because he's afraid. Because he sees Serenthus in there. He says the enemy of the truth. They approached it differently. And I think we need to be aware of that as the modern church. And I think to bring it home at Grace Athens, we need to be different. I want us to humbly build a bastion of biblical truth and faith right here in an ever-changing, not just culture, but American church. It's needed. We need to help people with their times of doubt. Help people with their questions. Humbly, sensitively. While always speaking the truth. We need to build a true center and sender of biblical faith so that the next generation may know. Amen?